Why can't the English teach their children how to speak? This verbal class distinction by now should be antique. If you spoke as she does, sir, instead of the way you do, why, you might be selling flowers too. As students settle in for the new school year, perhaps changing to different schools in this era of charters and magnets, a Stanford University linguistics professor has found that for some African-American kids, a new zip code may also change the way they speak. Using data from a long-range federal program in five cities, including Los Angeles, John Rickford saw that black children whose families moved from poorer neighborhoods to more prosperous ones tended to dial back on speaking AAVE, African-American Vernacular English. Rickford's an expert in vernacular language, including Caribbean Creole dialects. He studied the controversial AAVE testimony of Trayvon Martin's friend, Rachel Jantel, and explains how kids who move may pick up mainstream speech that can help them navigate the larger society without leaving their homegrown speaking patterns behind. For English, you're regarded as a freak. Why can't the English? Why can't the English learn to speak? The school year is just beginning here in Los Angeles. Parents have been shopping around for schools and school districts to give their children an advantage. In your research, you found that for African-American children, this could mean something very specific, right down to the way they speak. The work we did uh, was part of a larger study called Moving to Opportunity, um, in which families in five cities, Baltimore, Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York, um, who lived in high-poverty neighborhoods, were divided into groups, and some were given an opportunity to move to lower-poverty neighborhoods. And what we found, in short, was that... um, particularly for youth, African-American youth, uh, who, are, who are more liable to, to change over time than adults, that there was a reduction in the extent to which they used um, African-American vernacular English in their interactions with the, with the interviewers. It doesn't mean that they dropped their African-American English um, necessarily um, in their everyday use, but in situations where um, they were required to be a little, a little more formal. They were able to kind of switch more to standard English. That is, you know, each one of us has a variety of different ways that we speak. Um, everybody, everybody, you know, we, we, the way we speak when we're delivering a formal address is not the same way we speak when we're going home and, you know, we're watching our favorite football game or, or, or Olympic uh, session. What is African-American vernacular English? Can you give us some examples? We looked at 10 different features. So we looked at a number of grammatical features, for instance, uh, multiple negation. So um, something like saying, you know, she didn't do anything versus uh, she didn't do nothing, right? Um, or he ain't going nowhere. So in standard English and regular, what people might call, um, you know, uh, school English, you say, you know, she isn't going anywhere or she is going nowhere. Um, but in African-American English, as in a number of other dialects, uh, you can change both. So she ain't going nowhere. The double um, Then you have the absence of the copula. Uh, copulas are kind of verb that joins two things, like, um, you know, she is tall, uh, but you would say, you know, she tall. Um, or instead of saying, you know, he is going, um, you say, he going. He fun. He is funny. Okay, Ariel Baro, what's the answer? He is funny. He is funny? 
Excellent translation. What are the, the implications of this for young black people? Does it mean they're essentially bilingual? Uh, right. A lot of African-American uh, kids are what we would call bidialectal. Um, so they have more than one um, dialect. No one is ever completely limited to that. But um, if you don't have much interaction with people outside of your uh, community, then you get strongly reinforced in that one variety. And uh, the, the beauty of this study, where you're actually able to um, give people an opportunity um, to move to another neighborhood, is that you can kind of see the effects of that move. It did change, at least in terms of people having the ability um, to shift to a more standard variety when they were kind of required um, to do so. Well, Los Angeles is interesting in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, Norma Lemoyne and her colleagues have for years been doing a study of um, what they call the Academic English Mastery Program. Before, it used to be called the Language Mastery Program for African-American students. Um, they made it much more general, so they looked also at Latino uh, students and uh, students of Hawaiian background. And what's really interesting about the L.A. case is that um, it's been going longer and actually enrolls many more kids than Oakland ever did, but Oakland had this huge Ebonics controversy um, that attracted a lot of attention. And what was happening in Los Angeles was kind of totally ignored um, by the media. Now, in fact, the aim was also to help students to improve their English language mastery, but everybody focused on the Ebonics part of it rather than the, um, the English mastery. It was very controversial about 20 years ago, yeah. and I think part of the resistance may have come from the sense that Ebonics was being treated as a language that deserved to be taught with its own grammar, its own vocabulary, etc. Well, actually, um, um, there's, there's no doubt about it that Ebonics, like the Creole English of Jamaica um, or the Creole English of Hawaii, uh, is a very systematic um, language variety. That's probably the biggest mistake that people um, make. They think that because uh, because the variety is not the same as standard English, it doesn't have rules, but it, it, it absolutely does. So the idea was that you would, in fact, build on the regularity of those rules to help people to systematically, more systematically, master what they needed to do to use more standard English in writing or speaking when required. Was there any finding that indicated whether some of these African-American kids who moved into more prosperous neighborhoods were themselves, also themselves became more prosperous, that they had better outcomes in education and in career, in work, because they were able to expand yeah. their vocabulary, their modes of speaking? There's some more recent work that some of the, the actual um, economic consequences are stronger than people at first thought. Uh, what we have in our study is some projections of ways in which this could actually improve the economic situation um, of, of some of the kids. And I think at the time we worked it out at a, uh, not, not, a, not a huge difference, but possibly making as much of a difference as in earnings of, of about $700 per year, which would 
work out over a lifetime to a much stronger sum. But, you know, there, there are a number of things that stood out. For instance, one of the things we found was that the, the kids were exposed to more highly educated adults in the new neighborhoods than in the old neighborhoods. Secondly, that there was less segregation. They had fewer black and minority um, classmates. And one of the factors sometimes that affects these things is uh, peer group pressure, um, you know, to speak the vernacular. People who um, shift to the standard more often than not uh, tend to be sometimes ridiculed because the vernacular comes to be the marker of, of identity uh, and of, you know, expressiveness. So if so you are accused who, of, of acting white I'm or talking, talking white, white. Acting white, uh, that's something that um, linguists and anthropologists have been talking about um, since the 1960s uh, and 70s. There's a famous study in D.C. of, um, you know, how kids were mocked for, for talking white, um, you know, if you were black within the black community. One example I'm, uh, that came to mind, a pop culture example, is the Will Smith television show The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, where right. you have an upper-class black family right. welcoming right. into the fold of right. a, a street kid, a relative. Hey, Uncle Phil! Oh. <laughs> How you doing? <clears throat> I am not your Uncle Philip. Oh, uh, my fault, man. I must have got the wrong crib. But, hey, yo, I ain't know with so many brothers living in this neighborhood. <laughs> we doing all right, huh? That's right. That's right. Yeah, and environment is environment is everything. I, I probably one thing that I should keep emphasizing: they don't necessarily lose, you know, entirely their vernacular ways of speaking, but they become more adept at shifting between them and the right situation, which is what, what in a sense you want um, people to be able to do. You don't necessarily want to strip them of their, you know, their their original um, variety. Um, so, but it's that ability to negotiate. You know, when you're looking for a job, when you're trying to get a, a house uh, rental in a particular neighborhood, uh, to be able to negotiate, you know, back and forth. So you're right. You know, this thing that we're talking about with linguistic differences is not just an academic issue. You know, it affects, um, it's related to economics, it's related to criminal justice, um, you know, it's related to being able to, to get housing. I'm also thinking of another pop culture moment. Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop is making yep. fun of uh, the other police who are speaking this very upright, strict, standard English. We're not going to fall for a banana in the tailpipe. You're not going to fall for the banana in the tailpipe? <laughs> it should be more natural, brother. It should flow out like this. Look, man, I ain't falling for no banana in my tailpipe. See, that's more natural for us. You know, kids who, who do that with other aspects of behavior, they might be described as Oreos, you know, like the cookie, you know, black on the outside but white on the inside. So language is, in fact, a very, very important um, aspect of people's social identity and social um, personality. One of the things that we've found over the years is that it's, it's the way teachers react to these differences and their attitude and the way they approach them that often makes a difference in how kids can succeed. That um, you know, attitudes that are just that just set out to put down tend to have much more negative effects on kids' school performance. So once you recognize that what kids are doing is systematic, you can show them, you can kind of go very quickly to the 10 or 20 or 30 features that differentiate African-American English and standard English, and you can show them how to move between those two um, 
types of features much more effectively than if you just say in general, you know, speak good English, uh, or the way you're speaking is bad. The popularity of hip-hop, where now you see middle-class kids, white kids, embracing yeah, hip-hop yeah. and rap language, how has that changed the status of African-American vernacular English? Well, it's not clear. The hip-hop thing, we're, some people begin to look at it a little more closely because at least in those cases, what happens is that people, of course, very often memorize the words and they repeat them. Sometimes, you know, white kids who use some of the vernacular features are kind of mocked for trying to talk black. A lot of kids on football teams um, often end up using the vernacular. You know, white kids just hanging out with black kids. Um, you know, a lot of kids in the army. I think a lot of situations where people are together in close uh, contact and they come to depend on each other. Have the protests over police shootings, the movement Black Lives Matter, has anything changed in the vocabulary, the language, mainstream or African-American vernacular because of this? That's hard to say. There's certainly a strong sense of identity and solidarity in the African-American community, especially the young African-American community, and you can see it particularly on college campuses. Even, even at Stanford, you know, uh, we find rising numbers of enrollments in African-American studies. A lot of it around, you know, increased sense of solidarity and identity and outrage uh, and anger around the students of black kids. There are some kind of vernacular expressions. So among people who are involved in this, stay woke. W-O-K-E, stay woke. In other words, you know, be alert. Uh, keep your ears and your antennae up. Don't, don't be lulled into a sense of complacency. Now it's time for our wrap-up. Let's give it everything we've got. Ready? Begin. Professor John Rickford, thank you for your time. Thank you. Amazing. Analytically, I assault, animate things. Broken barriers bounded by the bomb beat. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Todd G. Levin. The clips are a Los Angeles classroom scene from the PBS documentary Do You Speak American, from the NBC sitcom The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and from the 1984 Paramount Pictures film Beverly Hills Cop. The music is Blackalicious Alphabet Aerobics and Why Can't the English from Lerner and Lowe's My Fair Lady. I am Pat Morrison. Karate kick type rits in my kingdom. Let me live a long life lyric.